0: So, tonight's movie is called, Freedom of the Mind. A movement towards healing. And I want to take a guess that some of you have been planning for this retreat for a really long time. Some of you may have been here last year and thought that it was worth coming back for, that it was a positive experience, or or else you wouldn't be here. Some of you are here for the first time, and I'm thinking that you're expecting a positive experience. (laughs) Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And based on that desire for a positive experience, it may have seemed that you moved heaven and earth to get here. That We know that we all have jobs, we have families, we have partners, we have children, we have jobs, we have relatives and pets and uh, friends. And you may have had to deal with their incredulous responses of, you're going to do what again? and you had to get all your tasks done at your job or all the assignments done at school or all the planning done for the the kids and the family and the childcare and who's gonna feed your spouse who can't boil water. (laughs) Rushing to pack and figure out to wear on an excursion which no one's supposed to be looking at you, so what are you supposed to wear? (laughs) And maybe on the day of your departure, whether you drove here, or you took the plane, or the bus, or you drove with someone because you needed the company because nobody else could understand, and the anticipation and the excitement of connecting with Dharma friends that you haven't seen in a year, or the anticipation of meeting new friends in the Dharma, the anxiety of not knowing how this experience will be, the doubt arising that maybe you should have booked that trip to Hawaii instead, which there's a hurricane there anyway. (laughs) So (laughs) it's good that you're here. And after unpacking and being a little bit disappointed in the room or the bathrooms or your yogi job or your roommate, getting oriented to the first evening, receiving all of those instructions. And finally, you're ready to do what you came to do, to meditate, to sit, to walk, to be aware. And you find your position in that cushion or your chair, your Dharma seat. And you make sure that you're comfortable and you close your eyes. And you begin, finally, All you need to do is to be with that present moment, with the breath, with what arises. And is that what happens for 45 minutes? For 30 minutes? For 15 minutes? Or even five? I would take five as we sit in this incredible landscape, right? Every need is taken care of. I mean, an incredible staff, the food is there, the facility is, is a four-star facility. We are so gifted. And the precious teachings to guide us as well as ourselves as a community And as we create these conditions for stillness, are we still? Are we peaceful? Is the mind at ease? And if it's not, what is that about? There are these energies that pull our mind away from our most sincere intentions to be aware that feed our difficult emotions, that create mountains out of molehills, that write voluminous novels out of single thoughts, and create perpetual calendar of events, of things to do. Right? (laughs) These energies are called the hindrances. They are universal to our experience. I emphasize this because often we think that these experiences are only happening to ourselves, that we're the only person in the room experiencing this. Not. Completely not. These are, in, these are energies that hinder our clarity, our ability to experience the present moment. And there are five of them and some of you may have heard about these. So the first one is sense-desire, or wanting, from the, that arises from the six sense doors, the eyes, the nose, the taste, the ears, the touch, and the mind, the mind-heart. The, the mind-heart is the sixth sense door in Buddhist psychology. And its forms, it, it comes in its forms of wanting or lust or greed, just desire in all of its forms. The second is the flip side of the coin, is ill will, aversion, which has its application or, or manifestation sometimes in <clears throat> anger or indifference or uh, aversion, fear, the third is um, yeah, the traditional words are sloth and torpor, which is really that drowsiness, that sense of, you know, I've heard some snoring in the in the hall, as we all have. This is the this is the, you know, the drifting off. Fourth is the restlessness sort of the flip side of the drowsiness, the restlessness, the anxiety, the um, agitation, whether it's in the body or in the mind. And they're probably coexisting in relationship with each other. And the last, the fifth, is skeptical doubt. So, I want to talk about these um, pretty generally because, just to give you a framework, because if we're going to further our practice, to deepen our practice, we actually have to find ways of navigating through them. It's not necessarily about stomping stomping them down or repressing them, but we have to find ways of navigating through them because they will arise, just like other conditioned things in our experience. So I'll talk about them in general and and if there are questions about specific applications, it's actually a great place to bring in your individual interviews. Since not everybody's condition is the same. And the image that I have of these hindrances, um, you know, we have this metaphor of spiritual exploration being like a journey or a path. And I have this image of, of these tall grasses growing up. In the path, obscuring it. And the more that you walk through the path, the more the path becomes clearer. The parting of the grass over and over again creates greater and greater openness, even though sometimes those blades of grass seem like bamboo forests. But even bamboo forests bend. One of the, one of the uh, tools that has been helpful in my own practice is this acronym that uh, Michelle McDonald Smith uh, developed at IMS and it's RAIN, R-A-I-N, recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-identification. So that's just the framework that I'm going to be talking about, these hindrances. And first is the recognition that a hindrance has arisen. Because if we don't know what's in front of us, we don't, we, we're, we don't, we're just not aware of its presence. In the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, it says, O noble ones, meaning those on this path, Us, for example. O noble ones, when sensual desire is present in you, the noble one knows there is sensual desire in me. When sensual desire is absent, they know there is no sensual desire in me. They know how the arising of non-arisen sensual desire comes to be, and they know how the rejection of arisen sensual desire comes to be and they know the non-arising in the future of rejected sensual desire comes to be. That is just like the instructions on the breath, that we begin to identify the inception of the breath. How does the breath begin? The entire length, how does it end? noticing how the hindrance arises. What are the causes? What are the causes for it not to arise? So I was practicing in a retreat at IMS, and and I'm describing the first time this sort of clicked for me, this, this aha experience. And there was a lot of restlessness in my body. And so just like Michelle was saying last night, sati, mindfulness, is remembering. It's another translation of that word. So I decided to try to follow backwards what this restlessness was about. So I became aware of the experience right before the restlessness occurred. And it was fear. And from that fear I followed that back, feeling it in my body, and there was a memory of a very stressful period in my life in which it, was, it, it, it um, manifested in a lot of uh, gastrointestinal problems. There was, it was a physical, you know, it was just a very stressful period in my life. And I followed that back, and I followed it back to a gurgle in my stomach. And from that came the memory, came the fear of of this kind of stress recurring in my life, and then the restlessness of the mind. That's what is possible when we begin to bring our attention in detail to our experience moment to moment we have to have that kind of intention to be curious, as Michelle also was saying. Because most of the time, we're trying to get rid of the unpleasant experiences of our mind or the busyness. We simply, we simply are too distracted, sort of running around, not really noticing what's going on. Ajahn Lee Damadara, who is one of the um, very prominent forest monks in Thailand in the last century, he passed away in the mid 1960s. He said, when people, when people are out in the sun, they usually keep running around. They don't know how hot the sun really is. If you really wanna know how hot it is, you have to sit out in the middle of a field when the sun is really strong for about five minutes. It's the same thing with pain or stress. If the mind goes running around without stopping, it really doesn't see the pain and the stress. It has to be still if it wants to see. Sometimes we um, experience this restlessness in in a very simple experience called an itch the body twinges and it gets and the mind gets restless because it's disturbed that this is not something that i like and usually what happens the hand goes to wherever it itches and we get rid of it and I wonder if anyone thinks that itching and itch is a life-threatening condition. Because if you agree that it's not a life-threatening condition, what is it like to experience the itch through the itch? Because you know it's not going to stay with you for the rest of your life. What is it like to stay through the body as it's restless? and get to the other side, because there is another side. And if you don't, if you, if you are always in the mode of reactivity and, 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 and the hand going to the itch, you'll never know what it's like to be on the other side. The second piece of that acronym is the acceptance of a hindrance. Letting go of our need to experience life in a certain way. Acceptance is really about our relationship to our preferences. Because we usually try to manipulate our life by holding on to or reaching out for things that are pleasant or pushing away and running away, turning away from things that are unpleasant constantly. And usually the hindrances are unpleasant experiences. And we're forever trying to change that by making them go away. It may seem admirable that, you know, we want to be very still and concentrated on the breath and trying to get there. And can you, can you hear the desire in that? Can you hear the striving and the desire in wanting to be still? It's not desire that leads to freedom. Again, Michelle talked about that. (coughs) Mindfulness is freedom itself. All desire, even desire for freedom, is the desire for no desire. All desire is the desire for no desire. Desire uh, would like us to be in that plateau of contentment, of not needing anything, But the delusion of desire is that it has no wisdom, it has no insight. It's like using a phone book to prove that there is no phone company. You know, it's a contradiction in terms. Only mindfulness has insight. And so that means the awareness of a hindrance is not the hindrance itself. So the awareness that you're in a state of wanting, the awareness that you're in anger is not the anger itself. The awareness of depression is not the depression itself. And in the seeming solidity of these really strong emotions, it can give you that crack in that wall that feels so solid. Many times we're caught in a hindrance, feeding a hindrance, like being angry at being angry or being depressed at being depressed. You know, the, the, the non-recognition, this is what I was saying before, the non-recognition and the non-acceptance feeds the hindrance. When you don't recognize something, you have no possibility of changing it. We can only change what we're aware of. Otherwise, we continue to want things to be different than the way they are. so as a person of color and a gay man i often don't see myself or hear my story in most of the meditation halls that are available you may have had some of this experience i wanted to i wanted the people in the room to be who they were not Can you feel the tension in that? And over time, venues like this have developed. But not every retreat is like this. We know that, how precious this particular venue is. Cultural identity is a doorway into our spiritual exploration, regardless of how that identity manifests but we can be attached to the door. And there is suffering if we desire only the door and cannot see what is beyond that. The freedom I wanted was to change the room, to be more like me. Over time, The freedom I got was to be able to practice anywhere, with anyone, under any condition, under any circumstance. I offer that as a kind of freedom. Third, investigation of a hindrance. And this is what Michelle was referring to around being curious. It's one of the factors of awakening, investigation. Looking into what is really happening. And whatever it is that's happening, how long is it lasting? What is its length? As you you notice the inception of the breath, what is the breath's length? How does it taper? What is the ending like? what is the pause between the inhale and the exhale one of i feel to be one of the most insidious hindrances is this aspect of drowsiness of sleepiness cuz it just seems to come up and and it's very difficult to identify and you know we we tend to personalize it we tend to think that you know we're doing something wrong we're not good at this, and therefore we're not a good person. And so I just want to tell you that there, the Buddha had two chief disciples, Saraputra and Moggallana. Ananda was the guardian of the Dharma. He sort of had this memory that I could remember all of his um, talks. But his two main disciples on each of his side are Saraputra and Moggallana, Mogalana was um, chief in all of the sort of paranormal supernatural powers that develop out of deep practice. And as he was practicing before his awakening, his primary hindrance was sloth and torpor. He just fell asleep all the time. This is his chief disciple. So it's not a big deal around sleepiness and Bhante gave us some of those instructions um, uh, in the question and answer period that the Buddha actually gave to Mogalana to reflect on the Dharma to brighten the mind, to shake your uh, ears and rub your limbs to brighten the body, wash your eyes with water or look you know into um, to open the eyes, to, to bring the light into the eyes. And maybe you need to take a rest. But taking a rest without, or with the intention of not overindulging. Because we know how much we can escape in sleep, that we can, it's a, it's a false sense of compassion, right? Oh, I'm gonna take care of myself. I'll sleep through this walking meditation. So just noticing where your edge was, is. And that's another aspect of walking meditation that Gina was talking about, that it balances our sitting practice so that when the body is sluggish, your next walking period, take a fast clip, walk quickly, And see if that generates the energy in the body. Expand the length of your walking meditation. Walk from the meditation hall all the way down to the road and back. Make it your own practice based on what your experience is. And allow this this rhythm to develop for yourself. Sitting, walking, sitting, walking. sometimes we notice the hindrance in someone else. You know, we hear a little bit of snoring in the room. or um, So I want to ask you, when your partner starts to snore in bed, what do you do? Do you kick them out of the room? Or do you just gently touch them and, you know, you don't even have to say anything. They'll know what they're doing. (laughs) But it's a practice in compassion. So that a, a practice in compassion, not just when we have a hindrance arising, but also when others do. And there's no harm in just, you know, gently touching someone to wake them up in the meditation hall you'd be doing a service to the yogi, the practitioner, as well as the group. Non-identification with a hindrance. So I've sort of alluded to that a little bit. It's hard because this this aspect of... um, self is, is, is something that uh, is very deeply conditioned in our psyche. But these energies that arise, if we can conceptualize them uh, as just a way of communicating about them, as these energies arise, is it possible to get out of the way and just watch the energy? So one of the um, examples that, that has helped me is um, noticing anger as it arises. Especially when you had nothing to do with whatever what, what was happening. So if someone is angry at you, just noticing that energy arise, that there was nothing that, at fault that you did. And is it possible for that energy to go through you as opposed to get stuck personalizing it, oh, it's my fault, when you know on a deep level it's not. It happens to me a lot, you know, driving, you know, because I notice the road rage. And it's so much about what they're experiencing. It's so much about, you know, they're having a bad day. And I watch, I try to see that energy go through me as opposed to land on me. One of the, um, one of the hindrances that's difficult around non-identification is doubt, skeptical doubt, because there, it feels a little bit cognitive, more like, Um, who there, there has to be somebody doubting. But doubting, I just want to make a distinction, is not questioning. It doesn't mean that we give up critical intelligence or the ability to question and thereby determine what is skillful or not skillful. And when we talk about skillful, what we're really talking about is what is going to lead towards the end of suffering? What is going to lead towards happiness? What is going to lead towards the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion? That's the definition of skillful. Doubt is rather the lack of faith. It's a lack of confidence. So there's there's an emotional quality to it. And there are three things that I would uh, invite you to consider if doubt arises in your experience about being able to do this practice, about being able to sit through one more period, (laughs) or look at one more walking step. Because if you lack faith or confidence in your practice or your abilities, just know that each of us that sit up here have so much faith and confidence in your practice that your practice will transform your life unquestionably. And just, if you can, ease your mind into that Let it float on our faith and see if you can borrow some of it. Don't take, second one is, don't take your doubt so seriously. And just check out to see if doubt is really about questioning. Appropriate questioning about uncertain uncertain things. Because it's so hard for us to live in uncertainty. We want to know. So when doubt arises, we just don't like it. We want to know what's next. But our lives are also limited to what we know. When we know something, it eliminates so many possibilities. So living in that uncertainty is really a gift and it's very difficult. It's okay not to know. And lastly, again, there is this experience of doubt as pure energy. It's not as, um, it's not as obvious as anger you know, when the body literally turns red. But it is an energy. And so when you find yourself doubting your practice or doubting your potential, see if you can just shift the trajectory of it and doubt your limitations. Just see if you can just shift it. The doubt is still there. You've just redirected it. And play with it, so these hindrances are um, they can be really complex to work with because they're all f- interacting at the same time. it's never a linear process and i was um, I was on the east Coast recently, and um, my partner and I were uh, in maine. Uh, on a vacation, and we were in this really, really noisy restaurant um, in, in Maine. And we were having a really good time. Um, and I was just noticing that, the, that our conversation was, uh, we were just really engaged. And the, the, the intensity of the conversation that my partner was having was almost as intense as the noise coming into the sense doors. So just, you know, like trying, I was talking in our group, um, today about foreground, background, that you can you can be listening to my voice in the foreground, but you know, in the background there are creaks of the chairs and people moving around, and if you really wanted to, you could bring those other sensations to the the foreground, and my voice becomes in the background. It, it From your from your intention, you can actually move the object of your concentration and mindfulness. So anyway, in this noisy restaurant, I became aware of this very young child, two, three years old, just screaming. I mean, just very unhappy, suffering, and and um, and you could tell that she was getting more and more agitated because it was noisy right she was just taking in she had no ability to self regulate or and she was just reflecting the environment back without and and i was looking at the adults and the adults weren't doing that you know at some point in time we recognize the noise And we develop this ability to push it into the background, either to filter it out, or to talk louder, or to leave the restaurant. But we have these mechanisms in which we deal with all of this noise. Hindrances are like this noise, that when they arise in the beginning, We just don't know what to do with them, and we just reflect them back. We feed them. We don't know how to begin to tolerate them in the rest of our experience. But as we live into our practice, they become part of the background. And eventually, they lose the energy. They lose their power. And they begin to fade out completely. As we sit on our cushion or our chair, the noise of our whole life arises. It is said that when you sit on your cushion, your whole life comes up. This is more intense than any therapy session you have ever been to in your life. You know why? Because it's 24-7, it's not, you know, an hour a week. (laughs) That is, you know, a very light experience compared to this. This is part of the purification process. How we see our lives with all its noise, and not how we wish things to be, but how is it really for us in this moment? And what arises for us within communities of color is a particular kind of noise called oppression. And I want to describe this targeting as a kind of cultural trauma. The grass on this part of our path can be particularly high and thick and very difficult to get through. the hindrances will arise in these experiences. We will want things to be other than the way they are. In my other example of of, uh, going to retreats, we may not want to go to any other retreat than this. You may get sleepy or agitated when memories of events In which you've been targeted arise on the cushion. You may doubt that this practice can do anything to help you through those experiences. So I first want to say that no two people manifest or experience trauma in the same way. So I don't pretend to have answers. I can only share what my own understanding is about my own experience to date. And it probably will change. Actually, it definitely will change as I live into uh, my future. Trauma is a suffering of an extreme event which persistently intrudes into our experience it actually disorganizes our experience with life because of the continuing re-experiencing of that suffering, and it begins to condition us. These complex experiences of sorrow or injury, especially when they've been multiple traumas, there's a sequence of events that actually can magnify each other. One trauma can magnify the next, leading to more and more suffering. And this is traumatic conditioning. There's a medical term called allodynia, which means that there's a, um, in certain circumstances, when you have an injury to the body, let's say you injure your knee in an accident, and it heals. Everything is working about it. But if there's a re-injury to it, even though it may just be a bump, the person experiencing it, experiencing an in intensity that um, is either greater, is, is either the same as or greater than, the, than the, the very first injury, because it's a sensitized spot already. And within cross cultural psychology, there is this aspect of ethnocultural allodynia that our traumas magnify each other. Our experiences connect. We may have felt this, I have felt this, when there's an injury that happens to us, which isn't catastrophic, right? It's not not disorganizing in that way. And yet it triggers a very deep memory of an injury in our past. This kind of traumatic conditioning maps onto our experience. It affects our experience of the present moment. It's not our fault. It's not that we're deficient in some way that we don't have the spaciousness or equanimity to hold it all. It's simply seeing that this is a product of conditioning. And whatever is conditioned can be reconditioned. We cannot change that which we are not aware of. When we become aware of it, is our door into the transformation. Do I want to stay here? Am I okay with this suffering? Or do I need to make a choice to change it? Some of you know that my father is going through some extreme medical difficulties right now. He got a recent cancer diagnosis that is quite um, uh, severe, and it has traumatized my parents. They're 91, so um, they're quite fragile in any case. And it traumatized them because it came on suddenly, and they had to navigate through a medical system, healthcare system that we know is totally dysfunctional. Not knowing you know, the, the paperwork or the doctors or how to move through it. And what I saw them do was contract into the trauma of their original immigration into this country. When they came to a country in which the system didn't work for them, that they had to even give up their names, and that no one understood them. They couldn't understand the paperwork. And all they had was each other, and they developed this protective defense against the world in order to survive. And I saw this happening in 2007, 65 years after they immigrated that their defense mechanism that they defaulted to in, in crisis was even to push me away from, from being a caregiver or a helper. This is when our awareness is not with what is happening. We default to our previous conditioning, which can be really strong. Most of of the time when we react instinctively to traumatic events, it's one of three things, flight, fight, or freeze. These are primarily physical sensations. If you can sense them in your body right now, this is where the practice of mindfulness of our body is so powerful because the physical sensations arising as the memory arises is not the original event. And our mindfulness gives us an opportunity to renegotiate our traumas with strengths and resources that we didn't have at that time. We have the possibility of getting through those experiences now and seeing the other side when it wasn't possible back then. And this is an incremental process. And this is, this is all the work of the progressive desensitization that clinical therapies offer. It's just another way of languaging it. One of the most important supports in this work is compassion. Compassion for where you are. And in the case of my parents, compassion for where they are, holding them in this contracted state. I just, the only thing that I could do was to offer them options, continue to offer them options, whether they decide to take them or not whether they decide to push them away or not, so that they can have the visceral experience of just relaxing into the possibility. And as they began to trust that they weren't going to be harmed by some of these possibilities, I saw them begin to expand from this very contracted state. So coming as close as you can to whatever difficulty that's arising in your meditation. But if there is a feeling of overwhelm, to take care of yourself and back off. It may not be the right time. But then when you do gather your resources and energy, returning the awareness that when you back off you don't turn away. You just say, in another space and time, keeping the potential for walking through the experience as opposed to around it. Tongpulu Sayadaw, who is the, one of the um, uh, Asian masters that are the teachers of our teachers, both Asian and, and uh, European-American, said, if you know it, it will break. If you don't know it, it will go round and round. And what he's talking about is the wheel of samsara, the wheel of suffering. If you're aware of it, you have the possibility of ending it. I told a story last year in this retreat about... um, um, it was the hair story you know it was how I hid behind my hair for thirty seven years and and how I came when, when I was ordained, and the hair had to come off uh, the memory of, of the self hatred of how I looked and how I wanted to change how I look and that 's why I grew my hair long and then I lost the memory and having to experience the memory with The only thing was was awareness. It's been a a little less than two years since I've had that experience. And I can honestly say, I kind of sort of like how I look these days. (laughs) And I will tell you, this is a breakthrough for me that the kind of sorta is my healing process. Many of you may know the work of a, um, I think, really special high school student, um, African-American woman, Kiri Davis. She used to be a high school student, she's, she's now not, but when she was 16, she created this video called A Girl Like Me. And it, she replicated the experiment of um, uh, Kenneth and Mamie Clark in the 1940s around um, African-American children being given the choice of uh, a white doll and a black doll. And how often, and with the messages that they got from, from this experiment, and how often and how, it, how early a self-image is internalized And on an individual level, you can, you know, maybe describe it as characterological, but when it happens across a culture, when it happens across a community, when it happens across many communities, this is an aspect of oppression. And as we work through our individual experiences with oppression. We change our collective, historical, and generational patterns in regards to our relationship with trauma and oppression. I hope you believe that's possible. Dr. Rinaldo Walcott, who's the chair of the Social Justice Department at the University of Toronto says, those who do not put their dead to rest are doomed to be haunted by the myriad ways in which traumatic histories return. The first step is to therefore acknowledge historical trauma. The next step is to recognize the forms in which residual trauma haunt us. Only then can we begin to talk about resolution and healing. One of the most powerful examples comes from this sangha. There is a sister who has come to many of these retreats. She lives in Tallahassee. And she learned the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice. And I got a call from her earlier this year, and she decided with her local sangha, to bring the metta practice and sit under the trees in which African American men had been lynched, to begin to heal the legacy of slavery. This is the power of our practice. Who is going to show us how to bring our dharma practice into our everyday lived lives? In the overwhelm of trauma, the question sometimes arises, why me? The question of awareness is who else? Who else could possibly know how to heal our lives? Can you feel the potential impact of the Dharma on our communities? on our society and our world. It is not just about your practice or your awakening or your freedom. It's not about personal salvation. It's about transformation of our whole communities and our world. There's a direct connection between what you do here in retreat and how we are in the world. The creation of peace in the world that so desperately needs it is no different than the creation of peace within ourselves in this retreat. Our practice is not some postponement into some unknown future of our freedom. We are creating moments of freedom right now for ourselves, and the world, and the world yet to be. Michelle began her talk with a dedication to our ancestors. And so I ended by saying, my talk, by saying, we are the ancestors of the generations yet to be. We are the elders, regardless of our anatomical age. We are both supported by a lineage and we are the lineage yet to be of this this stream of liberation. This is the magnitude of our practice. Feel the collective embodiment and the possibility of transformation from our practice. Because this is the great journey that we're on. And it is possible because the Buddha said he would not teach that which we could not do. So freedom is possible in this lifetime. And so I invite you to let go of all the words that have been said and heard. Just coming into your own experience in this moment, allowing the words to fade away as the sound of the bell fades away. go of the words, allowing yourself to sink into and be held by the experience of this moment, returning to the awareness of the possibility of freedom in this moment. for your attention and patience in the Dharma. was given by Larry Yang at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 15, 2007. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.